You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, she, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. You may be seated. You know, Christmas is a time for each of us to slow down and to appreciate the fact that God has chosen to interfere in our lives. He has chosen to interfere in the affairs of man. C.S. Lewis actually, in his biography of how he came to faith, said that it was divine interference, the idea, the Christian notion of God interfering with our life that kept him back from the faith for a very long time because he, by his own words, says, I despise authority, I was a lawless man, and I didn't want anybody or anything to interfere in my life. But that's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? That God was kind enough to interfere into our world and into our life. And as he does, as he does this uh, through the birth of Jesus, which is really the beginning of God's greatest divine interference, a few things are revealed, which we're going to walk through in the story today. Christmas reveals a king and his kingdom, a king and a kingdom like no other. It reveals a God in his glory, and it reveals a peace and a favor that you and I can possess. A king in his kingdom, a God in his glory, a peace and a favor. So let's first study together this king and this kingdom that's established through Jesus. Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now Caesar here, Caesar Augustus, is the emperor of Rome. He is the king of the known world, basically. He's the adopted great nephew of Julius Caesar. Now a little bit just historically about this man, Caesar Augustus. He is known to be both egotistical and cunning. He declared himself to be the high priest of their religion. Not quite God. He didn't establish himself as God because that would be politically incorrect. So instead he established Julius Caesar as God and himself as the great high priest. And so uh, he's trying to have the best of both worlds. 
exalted status without conflict, without confrontation. This is who Caesar Augustus is. And then we read what he does in verses two and three. He makes, he requires a census. Look at verses two and three. This was the first registration when Quirinius, he's like a guest man down the chain of command. He was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own hometown. Now, why would the king of the known world, the king of Rome, decree a census where everybody all across the regions would have to go to their own hometowns to be registered. Why would he do that? Well, you order a census for your ego and for your self-assurance. A census finds out how many people are subject to you. A census finds out how many people you should expect to pay taxes. A census finds out how many well-bodied men you have to fight just in case you need to go to war. So when you think about Caesar Augustus, you need to see a man who makes his decisions on the basis of what's best for him, even at the expense of others. That's, the, that's just the kind of king and kingdom that we have here under Caesar Augustus. And I'm not trying to make, I'm not trying to make a special case against him. This, this is the condition of every human heart, isn't it? We just seek what's best for ourselves. Somehow, we find ways to work things out for our benefit. We are, the human condition is completely self-oriented. And that's the kind of king he is, and that's the kind of kingdom he runs. Caesar Augustus. But now we continue through the narrative and see that Luke's not just recording real history here, but he's also making a very clear distinction between the kind of king Augustus is and the kind of king Jesus is. Verses four through seven. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time for her to give birth came, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So if you're seeing the story here, the camera lens was just on Augustus, this pompy, pompous, wealthy, wealthy, assertive king announcing this decree. And then the scene changes and the camera rolls towards this young and weary, poor couple, Joseph and Mary, traveling across the Palestine wilderness. There's a few details worth noting here that just sort of set up the situation and give us eyes to see here. Uh, Joseph's entire family would be going to Bethlehem, right? Or be going to Jerusalem at this point, because this is a national decree where everyone's required to go back to their hometown. So you'd expect some sort of family reunion also to be taking place during the census. But what we notice in the story is that Joseph and Mary are traveling all alone. Later on, when Mary gives birth, they are alone. Everybody else seems to have room but them. So it's not explicit, it's not explicitly stated, but what's suggested is that Mary and Joseph to some degree are ostracized from their family, cut off from their family on their own. Likely because Joseph sees, Joseph's family either sees him as a liar, having this child out of marriage, or they see him as just an imbecile staying with this woman who's been unfaithful to him, pregnant with another man's child. We can confidently say that they are on their own. They're all alone. Luke also records in verse 5 that Mary is with child. Now, in the original language, that means she is very pregnant. She is full term. She's hot, she's hot 
She's tired. Her feet are swollen. She's in pain. She's due any time now. And the reason why that's so important to note is they're traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is a 100-mile hike. And they're doing that in the hot desert. This is the dangerous reality of first century AD, and they're right in the middle of that danger. Full-term pregnancy, traveling 100 miles across the desert for this required census that really serves no purpose other than this king's ego. Then we read that Mary goes into labor in Bethlehem. But things don't get easier because there's no room for them in the inn. And so Mary, what happens? She gives birth to her firstborn son amongst animals. And when Luke says that Jesus is laid in a manger, you know, that means a feeding trough where the animals would eat from. In ancient times, animals were not kept in barns like today. So she doesn't even have the luxury of being in a barn. Animals were kept in caves or courtyards. And these animals are likely every other traveler's animals, donkeys, goats, and horses. So this would be like having a baby in a barn or under a bridge. So when you imagine this scene, you can't get any lower than this. This is as low as it gets, as distressing as it gets, as sad as it gets. And so I hope you feel just the weight of the, the scene of Christmas. This is really bleak. This is really hard. This is humble. This is humble beginnings for this, you know, young couple in love having their first child together. Humble beginnings for a king. But within the danger and humiliation of this scene, there's actually royalty. Because Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now throughout the whole Old Testament story, there's been this anticipation that a king would come from the line of Judah, from the line of David, who would be the king of all kings, to, be, to set up a kingdom that would end all kingdoms, the promised king. And so this newborn baby, this firstborn son, delivered in the streets of Bethlehem, he is the long-awaited Davidic king in the line of Judah. He's the ultimate king. He's the king of kings. He's the king all other kings pointed to before. But if you're royal, if you're royal, this entrance, at best, it's humble. At worst, it's embarrassing. A king is born. More on that in a minute. Side table that for a minute. Let's now think about the kingdom he's establishing. Verses 8 through 10. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, underline that, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So an angel appears to these shepherds to announce Jesus' royal entrance. And he uses the phrase there in verse 10, good news. I bring to you good news of great joy. Good news is where we get the word gospel. It's like the, the exact translation of this word in, uh, in the original language. This is where we get the word gospel, good news. Now in ancient times, this is a very political word. This is a royal word. A gospel, it's a royal announcement. But a gospel, even though the word literally means good news, wasn't always good news. A gospel, depending on the king who's invading, the imperial king, wasn't always good news. 
An imperial king would make a gospel, he'd make a decree, he'd say, this is your new language, this is your new custom, this is the new law, and here's the consequences if you break it. That would be one form of a gospel that would happen in these ancient times. It wasn't always good news. But there were other times when a gospel was good news if it meant the oppressed were lifted, if it meant that the invading kingdom would care for the vulnerable, then that would be a good news gospel. And this angel is saying that this is a good news gospel. And we know that this angel's gospel is good news by looking no further than who he's announcing this to. The audience. Who's the, who's the premier audience to this heavenly declaration? A bunch of shepherds. A bunch of shepherds. Now listen, this is really important. Being a shepherd, it's not the job you want. It's the job you get. A shepherd is one of two things. Either you're an ex-con or you're an unskilled, uneducated person. Further, if you're a shepherd, you're also not very religious or at least you're not a very good Jew because you're tending sheep and so you can't leave them. You don't go to temple very much. You don't go to synagogue. You don't easily worship. And in some way, you're breaking the Mosaic law, the law of God, because you're consistently unclean and you don't really observe the Sabbath because you're working every Sabbath. You're a shepherd in the fields. And so for all these reasons, shepherds had a social stigma in this time. They were actually hated and despised by their greater culture. They were distrusted. They couldn't testify in court. And this, okay, this is the chosen audience who's to receive this good news gospel, this royal decree about this newborn king. Now go back to verse 10 and stay there with me. The angels begin their decree by saying, fear not. Now this makes a lot of sense because these shepherds would obviously be terrified. It's nighttime. They're just south of Jerusalem, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem in this little town of Bethlehem. Nothing ever happens in Bethlehem. Nothing exciting is going on in Bethlehem. They're alone, they're tired, they're cold. It's going to be a night just like any other night, right? Until an angel appears and makes this declaration. And when it says that the angel appeared, like quite literally, again, in the original language, it means that angel showed up right next to them. Like, can you imagine all these guys hanging around the campfire, chit-chatting about life, and all of a sudden an angel just accompanies them, shows up right next to them? That's what's happening. And so obviously they're afraid, they're shaken, And even more, just uh, the reality of this, it says that the glory of God shone around them, around this angel. So it's almost like this angel steps through this heavenly portal and the glory of God that, that remains in heaven is shining through all around this angel. This is the very glory of God that Israel witnessed with dread as it filled the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. This is the very glory of God that Moses was hidden from in Exodus 34 because if, he, if, he is, if his face stared directly into the glory of God, it would kill him. This is the glory of God that killed people who were irreverent in the Old Testament. Like the glory of God, it is a dreadful thing at times, a very scary thing to get caught up in the middle of. So obviously these shepherds are frightened for a number of valid reasons. But look what the angel says next. Fear not, verse 10, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this, this news is not news of judgment. They're not waiting for like some hammer to drop. 
Nothing ominous is happening here. Fear not, good news of great joy for all the people. So this answers the question about what kind of kingdom Jesus is introducing. His kingdom, you'll notice it says, is for all people. All people. Now when you read that, don't think to yourself like this societal spectrum, the rich to the poor, uh, the top to the bottom. Don't think that necessarily. The takeaway when, when you hear the angels say this is for all people is that it doesn't favor those at the top. This kingdom is not partial. It's for everyone. Therefore, Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't resonate with the powerful. It doesn't reinforce the put together. It's not introduced to those who can pull their weight. It doesn't appeal to the strong. It doesn't appeal to those who have it together on their own. This kingdom, it's for everyone, which means those at the bottom are included. Get in on this kingdom. So Jesus' invading kingdom, it's great joy because for the first time, Ever, we have a kingdom that isn't built for the elite. It's for shepherds. It's for young, weary people like Mary and Joseph. It begins in a manger in the company of animals on the streets of nowhere Bethlehem. We think great kingdoms are the ones that can rival Caesar Augustus and bring him to his knees. But Jesus' kingdom isn't concerned about rivaling the proud by gathering the proud. Jesus' kingdom finds its way to the humble, to those in need. And again, we're not talking about social status. We're talking about spiritual status. This real historical story is meant to portray a spiritual reality that the kingdom is invading and finding its way to those who are spiritually destitute. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit the spiritually bankrupt. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is why James, in the book of James, Jesus' little brother writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This king and kingdom find his and its way to the lowly, to the desperate, to those in great spiritual need. Really good news. With one problem, though. How... Can the weak take hold of this kingdom? I mean, we're so far in the pit. We're so far in the deficit. How is it possible for us to like even somehow meet this king and kingdom halfway and get in on it? We can't even lift ourselves out of spiritual poverty. How are you supposed to meet him halfway? And that problem is solved now by understanding who this king is. We talked about the kingdom It's for the humble, the lowly, the spiritually destitute. But who is this king? Because that's what makes all the difference. Verse 11, here's who the king is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. That's Bethlehem. This royal city, which is packed with Old Testament anticipation that this is the city where the king of kings is going to come from. So Jesus, kingship is his destiny. Jesus is the king in the line of David. He is set to inherit all dominion. Kingship is his birthright. Kingship is his privilege. 
Born this day in the city of David, who else? What else? A savior, a healer, a defender, a champion. That's what a savior is. A deliverer. Who is what? Christ, meaning Messiah or anointed one. Now, Christ or anointed one, it means someone who's specifically selected for a task. Kings, prophets, priests were all anointed in the Old Testament, set aside for a specific task, called by God for a specific thing. And here is the ultimate consecrated one. Jesus is special, set aside for this really specific royal task. And lastly, he is the Lord, which simply means ruler. So here's the summary of who who Jesus is. This newborn possesses great destiny, great status, great favor, and great power. He is entitled to each one of those things by his birth, and he's bestowed each one of these things by God. Now here's what's really confounding. This king, who God has invested everything in, will take what he is entitled to and will take what he is bestowed with and he will use it to seek and find and exalt the humble. Another way to say it is this king is going to use all the divine powers and resources at his disposal, his privilege and his status and his rights and his authority to come and find us. So the great dilemma of the good news This kingdom's coming for you, the humble, the spiritually bankrupt. For me, the spiritually bankrupt, awesome. We can't meet God halfway, but we don't need to because this is the king who's literally using all of his divine resources and status to come and find us. He's our champion. He's our deliverer. He's our healer. He's our king. He's our ruler. He's using his strength for us who are weak. And that's why the angels say in verse 12, to look for sign, look for a sign, shepherds. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. The reason why they want the shepherds to go find that a king is like this, laying in an animal's trough with peasant parents, is because the way Jesus came into the world defines who his kingdom is for. For us who need help, spiritual help. So who is this infant king and kingdom for? It's not for people who are their own king, who are their own savior, who are their own Christ, and who are their own Lord. If you already have that, if you are that, you have no need for him. But if you have none of those things and you're looking for it, you have need for him. He is for you. In this story, God is interested in shepherds, and in peasants, and in those in distress, and it showcases the spiritual reality that God is interested in those who need a king and need a kingdom. J.I. Packer, famous uh, pastor and scholar in a book called Knowing God, writes this. In the New Testament, we're talking about the grace of God right now, just how God goes all the way to seek and save us and find us. In the New Testament, grace means God's love in action towards people who merited the opposite of love. God's grace means he moves heaven and earth to save sinners who cannot lift a finger to save themselves. 
Are you aware, are you here today aware of your spiritual need? Like aware, in, in, are you in touch with your spiritual poverty that you have nothing to offer God and that you need him so desperately? If you're here and you're a Christian and you have believed the gospel for a long time, here's what this should be producing in us. We should never, ever become proud people, should we? That, that makes no sense. It makes no sense ever for a person who believes the gospel to be proud or to be condescending or to look down on anybody else. Like the gospel always levels our ego, always levels our pride, always makes us radically humble and easygoing people because we know that even still, apart from God's grace, like we are spiritually bankrupt. We can't take credit for anything. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what do you have? What do I have that we have not received from God? We have everything from him. We are rich in him. We can take credit for nothing. And so if anything, if anything, what Christmas, the reminder of the good news of the gospel, Christ coming all the way, descending all the way to us, what it should produce in us is just total humility, right? Patience with others, grace for others, not being too critical, not having so many opinions, being humble. So, awesome news, this king and kingdom. But here's now what the story shows us. What does this reveal about God? What does this say about our God? It tells us something about his glory, God and his glory. Verses 13 and 14. The story keeps going. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So suddenly a multitude of heavenly hosts appear praising God. Why would that happen? Why do you think this one singular angel who's the deliverer of this message would suddenly be accompanied by literally an army of angels blasting out this chorus, glory to God, peace on earth. Why would this occur? This production, if you will. It's because heaven's hearing this message that's just been decreed by this one singular angel about this king who's come to earth to save us. And heaven itself responds in singing. Heaven is so ecstatic on the edge of its seat listening to this message that it breaks out of the heavenly dimension and comes to earth and sings this chorus for these shepherds. And when you study the first line of verse 14, you see why this chorus of angels, this choir of angels is so excited. They say, glory to God in the highest. Because of this good news, the only natural thing to respond and say and declare is glory to God in the highest. Now, do you know what that means? We've sung it all our lives. We've heard of all our lives. Have you ever thought about that, what that actually literally means? It means go to the highest places you can find, that you can imagine. Go to the emperor's throne. Go to the Oval Office. Go to the most extravagant penthouse suite. Go to the wealthiest and most influential person there is, or go find the most admirable person that you know. Or imagine the highest place in the spiritual realms, beyond the archangels, beyond the cherubim, beyond the fantastical creatures that we see in the heavenlies, beyond even the devil himself, like who seems so powerful, beyond every spiritual authority. 
God is greater. He is supreme and he is preeminent. The gospel, first and foremost, reveals how great God is and how worthy he is of all of our admiration. How deserving he is of every breath we have and every resource that he's given us and every single day of our lives because this is how great he is. I mean, who is like our God? Who do we know who leaves their convenience and leaves their privileges and uses their resources and power to come and save those who will never, ever be able to pay them back? Never, ever be able to balance the scales and make it right. There is only one being in existence who's like this. It's the one being who doesn't need to be like this. God has no reason to do this, but he does it out of sheer mercy. So therefore, yeah, glory to God in the highest. He is the best. He is supreme. This is really important that you have this massive vision of who God is, a great appreciation for the glory of God, how amazing he is. So look, I am a huge proponent of therapy and stuff like that. I'm a huge proponent of self-awareness. I think that emotional maturity I don't think you can be spiritually mature unless you're emotionally mature and therefore you need to be self-aware. But I'll say this, for all, however important that might be, the beginning to healing, the beginning to spiritual maturity, it's not self-awareness and counseling, it is worship. It's having this great vision of God, seeing him rightly for who he is and having our hearts turn to him as just a reasonable response. The path to healing is not first and foremost a look inward. It's a look upward. You need a right view of God. You need to see God for who he is, all sufficient, all glorious, all satisfying, preeminent and supreme. So does your doctrine of God, does your belief about who God is Does it draw you into worship? The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. And when you think about God, does it bring you to your knees? Does it take your breath away? Does it move you deeper into prayer, deeper into worship and admiration? If God is not big, if God is not great, if God is not mysterious, transcendent to you, if he's small, he'll never challenge you. That God that you've created, he will never challenge you. No doubt about it. And that's convenient. But if God remains small, then he also can never surprise you. He cannot save you and he will not stupefy you. And he will not satisfy you. A God who is safe will do none of those things. And so do you have a doctrine of God, like a belief of God? Have you worked that out in your life about who our God is? Have you worked that out enough that it pulls your heart into worship? You know, when we have those transcendent Um, realizations. And the light bulb goes on spiritually about who God is. So many of our problems and anxieties and things on the peripheral just fade away because this is who we're dealing with. And not just who we're dealing with, but this is who loves me and cares for me and hears me when I pray and draws near to me when I'm humble. So this is who our God is. He's all glorious. He's so deserving of our worship because of this good news of the gospel. But also, another another result of the good news of the gospel is our peace and our favor. This is what we get to live with now. Look at the second line of verse 14. The angels, this chorus of angels declare, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is a promise that you 
who have received the king and his kingdom, the good news of the gospel, receive his peace. But notice the qualifier that it's those who have, he has been pleased with, who have received his favor, in other words. If God has set his love and favor on you, then this peace is promised to you. In a sense, of course, God gives peace to everybody because he provides and protects and restrains. But that's not what this promise is. This kind of supernatural promise is promised to those who have received the king and his kingdom and subjected themselves to this king and this kingdom. And so this promise is for you, the promise of peace. Now here's how I want you to picture this because this is a really, this is a, peace is a holistic thing here, a theologically holistic thing here. I want you to picture it like a fountain that has three different levels that's cascading down. At the top, the most important level of the fountain, is the peace that we have with God now through Christ, the peace that we have through the gospel, that you and I, who have trusted that Jesus died in my place, and he resurrected from the grave so that we know it's true, and that that transfer has actually actually happened, when we put our faith in that and believe that message, we are now reconciled with God and at peace with him. And God's not angry with you. If you're a Christian, God's not mad. He's not stewing. You don't need to wait for the other shoe to drop. God only has love for you. You've been restored to your great father. He loves you. You have peace with God. Reconciled relationship. That's at the top of the fountain. And when that's filled to the brim, when you know that that's true, the ne- it, it, it overflows into the next level. And you know what that level is? From a peace right now. Peace with God becomes peace with yourself. Like you're no longer loathing yourself and beating yourself up, and exhausting yourself trying to be somebody, and establish yourself, and prove yourself to everybody else, and to your own self, especially because if this is how God feels about me, if this is what his opinion is of me, if he loves me, and has valued me, and died for me, then I don't need to beat myself up. Am I a better judge than him? If God the judge has made his verdict, and the verdict is you are righteous, then I have, it's actually not humble, it's actually very like arrogant of me to think that I'm a better judge than God then I, can, I should hold this over my head when God no longer does. And when that, when you have the peace of God and peace with yourself, something transformative happens. The last bowl is filled up, the last level is filled up. Peace with others. Because no longer, you're not, you're not walking around the world trying to like step on other people to establish yourself. You're no longer criticizing other people, putting one another down. You're no longer demeaning other people to puff yourself up. Like You've been filled up so abundantly by the peace of God that you can just literally turn around and be a blessing to other people around you and live at peace with your fellow man and your family and your friends. Like You can be that presence, that non-anxious presence in whatever environment you go because of the peace of God that comes from the gospel. On earth, peace with those whom he is pleased. This is a promise for us who walk with God. Like Our lives, our hearts can be filled with this radical peace that makes no sense. That makes no sense unless you have found this reconciled relationship with God yourself and then in turn others. So we asked the question at the beginning. God has interfered in the affairs of man. He has broken into our dimension and broken into our lives. And some like C.S. Lewis think that's just a nuisance But when you read this and understand the Christmas story, you realize this is such a blessing. Thank God that he has interfered in my life. Why has he done it? To give those of us without a king and kingdom the ultimate king and kingdom. 
And if you receive this infant king and humble kingdom and live in it, then you will come to find that God is glorified all the way up and his peace descends all the way down, even to me and even to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and for saving us and finding us. We here admit and acknowledge that we have nothing to offer you. We are so broken and we are so opposed to you naturally building our own kingdom and trying to be our own kingdom. We are sorry. We repent from that and turn away from that. We want you, Jesus, to be our king. We want you to, your kingdom to be our kingdom for the rest of the days of our life. And so we thank you, God, that you are so kind and gracious. Glory to you. And Lord, we receive your peace. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.